Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. It's December 11th. How are you listeners? Did you miss us? We missed you too. That said, it's late here and our interns slash children are not happy with us. So we are just going to zip through a few of the week's most notable stories in tech before getting back to managing slash parenting. It's definitely been a busy week on all fronts. It's been a very big week for two Silicon Valley companies, both of which have had massive ups and downs in recent years, both of which hit the public market this week, and both of which enjoyed a very warm reception. In fact, whatever public market investors are smoking or snorting, we want some. We're not entirely kidding. Airbnb, which was hit hard by the slowdown in travel this year, had to make a funding deal with Silver Lake at an $18 billion valuation in April. The next month, according to the New York Times, co-founder and CEO Brian Chesky cried into his computer camera as he addressed Airbnb's employees, telling them he had a deep feeling of love for them all, but that times were maybe tougher than they'd realized. Within a few hours, 1,900 employees, a quarter of Airbnb's workforce, were told they were out. Fast forward to yesterday, the day that Airbnb's shares began trading, and boy, it is a different story. The company, now listed on the NASDAQ, is valued at this moment at around $83 billion. So what happened in the last five or so months? Well, beyond the company's cost-cutting, it managed to convince Wall Street that many more people have discovered the company, including outside of the urban centers where it long depended on its growth. More specifically, it seems to have sold investors on a surge in bookings that vacationers took this summer to more rural areas to escape their homes. The question, of course, is, is it really worth two and a half times Hilton Hotels, which is valued at $30 billion and has something like 6,100 properties in 120 countries? I'm not smart enough to say. Certainly, there's an argument to be made that Airbnb is far more flexible because it doesn't have to worry about owning many hard assets that need to be kept up, that it has access to far more inventory, and that its biggest expenses are around tech and administrative costs, safety, and marketing. Also, Booking.com, another travel agency, is perhaps a better comp for Airbnb. And Bookings.com is also valued at around $85 billion. I think we just have to see what happens over the next few months. DoorDash, which went public on Wednesday and is suddenly valued at $55 billion, is another story. Unlike Airbnb, COVID has had a pretty positive impact on DoorDash's business throughout the year, given that people have been largely locked down and turned to the company in record numbers as restaurants around the country have been shuttered. Yet there are a lot of unanswered questions with DoorDash. Like Airbnb, it's not profitable. Like Uber, it relies on gig workers who many regulators worry are being taken advantage of. It's also benefiting again from a COVID bounce that could disappear once people get vaccinated and decide perhaps that it's not worth paying DoorDash to pick up something they can go get for themselves. An early investor told me this week that there's a lot more than meets the eye with DoorDash. He proposed that it could even acquire 7-Eleven in a similar move to another delivery service, GoPuff, which recently acquired the national chain BevMo. Still, I wouldn't invest in either of these companies right now at these valuations. And if I had to bet on one, it'd be Airbnb. Slava Rubin, founder of Indiegogo, a popular crowdfunding platform, is at it again. This time, he and co-founders Evan Cohen, Eric Cantor, and Ross Cohen have raised $2 million to provide consumers with access to alternative investments in areas like real estate, venture capital, collectibles, and art. 
their platform, called Vincent, will provide an easy way for accredited and non-accredited investors to discover deals on platforms like WeFunder, SharesPost, Rally Road, and Otis. Vincent will make money by collecting referral fees from these platforms. There is no shortage of companies offering access to deals in specific alternative asset classes. In real estate, think Fundrise. In art, Masterworks. And there are even startups like YieldStreet that are helping consumers invest across different alternative asset classes. The proliferation of competitors speaks to the size of the alternative investment market, which Rubin estimates will grow from $9 trillion to $14 trillion in the next five years. As a macro trend in this zero-interest-rate environment, alternative investments are hotter than ever, Rubin told Fortune. But there's still a significant amount of people intimidated by them, he explained. Ultimately, Rubin hopes Vincent can become the Zillow of investments by providing users with a simple, intuitive experience and editorial content that will enable them to learn more about different verticals. Benchmark hired a fifth general partner, it was announced today. Benchmark, as most of you will know, is now a 25-year-old venture firm that's among the most highly regarded outfits in the industry, owing to many wins over the years, from eBay to OpenTable to Uber. Benchmark's newest partner is Miles Grimshaw, who joins Benchmark from Thrive Capital in New York. Thrive was co-founded by Joshua Kushner, who is brother to Jared Kushner, the strangely doll-like senior White House advisor to his father-in-law, Donald Trump. Grimshaw, a Yale grad who studied economics, apparently has a great eye or a great Rolodex or likely both and has led deals for Thrive in such buzzy startups as Airtable and Benchling and Supergreat, which are also backed by Benchmark and whose partners must think quite highly of Grimshaw given that they recruited him. It's a notable hire for a few reasons. First, I sat down with the most senior member of Benchmark back in September, Peter Fenton, and he said the firm will never have more than six general partners at a time because it's run that experiment and it didn't go well. So this could be Benchmark last hire for quite a while. I also thought the hire was interesting because Grimshaw is white and male, as is Fenton. And though they are now the only white men on a team of five, I suspect Benchmark's next hire, whenever that happens, will look very different. Not only are more firms tackling the industry's heterogeneity, but Fenton said to me specifically during our sit-down, quote, I won't feel good about our failure if we don't tilt towards diversity. The industry is so systematically skewed in the wrong direction, and we've gotten so good at rationalizing how we ended up here that I don't think we can tolerate it anymore. New Fund Alert. New York-based Apura Capital is attempting to raise $150 million to short startups. Okay, that's not totally accurate. The fund will invest 70% of its capital in traditional venture deals. Still, it's the 30% of the fund devoted to short positions that earned Apura a place in Monday's Wall Street Journal. Apura intends to do this via something called Venture Synthetics. These contracts would have definable triggers, such as an initial public offering, merger or acquisition, or shares hitting a specific price. The money from each side of the bet would be held in escrow at a bank, and a third party would decide when the contract should be paid out. Apura founding managing partner Natalie Wang believes that there are legions of accredited investors who want more startup exposure that might be interested in these kinds of deals. Also, she doesn't think startups should mind that Apira is shorting its equity investments. Apira's shorts will not be about the value of the company, but the capital structure that caused them to be inefficiently priced, she said. It's a bet on the pricing valuation opportunity versus betting against the companies. Startup CEOs have a lot of options, no pun intended, and it's hard to see why the most competitive companies would want investors that are second-guessing their investments with short positions. Also, in order to take the other side of a bet— 
the counterparties would presumably need a lot of information about the target company, information many startup CEOs might not want to disclose. Apira certainly deserves credit for pioneering a new model, but whether it will be ultimately successful is another story indeed. Up next, our interview with Dina Shakir, a partner with Lux Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. It's no secret that tax laws may change under the incoming Biden administration. Acuity Realty, which develops multifamily and office developments with project partners like Apple and Cigna Realty Advisors, can help. Acuity is currently developing a qualified opportunity zone project just two blocks away from Google's new 80-acre campus in San Jose, and it is looking for individuals and institutions that are interested in growing their capital in a tax-efficient manner. Acuity has a long background in producing significant returns for investors. Over its last $1.2 billion worth of projects, it has generated an IRR of 49.9%. If you are interested in learning more about how you could possibly reduce your tax exposure from capital gains, or you just want to diversify your portfolio, please visit acuityrealty.com, that's A-C-Q-U-I-T-Y realty.com, or email Greg Ovalle at ov at acuityrealty.com. Contact Acuity today. This week, we talked with Dina Shakir, a Silicon Valley-based partner with Lux Capital, a 20-year-old venture firm that's long focused on hard sciences and which saw one of its biggest exits to date when Johnson & Johnson acquired Oris Health, a surgical robotics company in its portfolio, for $3.4 billion early last year. Shakir, who joined Lux last year, seems a natural addition to a team that has at least four PhDs on staff and is known for its collective brain power. An Iraqi American whose parents immigrated to the Bay Area, she put herself through both Harvard and Georgetown School of Foreign Service and contemplated becoming either a doctor or an anthropologist. But an internship with the BBC, where she covered a speech by then-President Barack Obama, set her on another course. And after graduation, she became a presidential management fellow with former Secretary Hillary Clinton. Two years later, she headed home to the Bay Area and spent the next seven years in a variety of roles with Google, including as a partner with its venture unit, GV. She subsequently joined Lux Capital. Here's our conversation. Dina, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. Dina, you've worked for two of the most highly regarded venture outfits in the industry. They've been known to make moonshot-like investments. GV, the venture unit of Alphabet, and now since last year, Lux Capital. This is a little inside baseball, but we have a lot of listeners and readers who might just be interested in knowing what's perhaps similar about the two organizations and what the biggest differences are between them. Can you give us an inside look? Yes, absolutely. It's a great question. There's the obvious difference, which is, of course, that GV was born out of Google and in many ways has this the Google DNA as part of its investment thesis, team construction, operational support, etc., which is absolutely a tremendous value add to the portfolio. And even with the emergence of Alphabet as a parent company, Google is still very much at the core. That couldn't be more different than the evolution and DNA, if you will, of Lux, which 
as as you may know, started off 20 years ago, co-founded by Josh Wolf and Peter Hebert at the time in their early 20s with a very bold, ambitious, and really contrarian hypothesis and a very, very small fund. The, in fact, the first fund was only 10 million. So very different evolution, very different team construction, thesis evolution, as well as ultimately portfolio. Tell me a little bit about the decision-making process inside of Lux. I still remember thinking about it as a small team. And of course, now it's not. In addition to Peter and Josh, there's Adam, Halish, there's seven other partners and a principal. That's a sizable team. Is the decision-making process top-down? Is it flat? Is it majority rules? It's definitely evolved quite a bit from that $10 million seed fund to now we have nearly $2.5 billion AUM. But Relatively speaking, still a fairly lean team. We also, about 10 years ago, opened up our West Coast location, which is where I'm based, and Peter leads that effort. And so we're bi-coastal now. But relative to the assets under management and the number of investments we make and the portfolio, it's still somewhat of a small team. It's the same core group of us who make decisions across every stage. So we'll do everything from first capital in and incubation all the way through growth. And uh, this is, I think, differentiated from a number of other funds as well. It's really the same group of us that makes those decisions. And in terms of how we make it, to your question, we are all generalists to some extent, despite the very specialized PhDs and backgrounds you'll see in our bios. Adam Goldburn, who has led many of our biotech and healthcare efforts to date, he's a biologist by training and an entrepreneur, but has also invested in drone racing league for example. So we all can champion and shepherd investments that we're personally interested in where we have our own thesis, but it is absolutely a one lux approach to decision-making and also to portfolio support. If you feel strongly about a company that your partners don't necessarily understand, can you argue your way into a term sheet? Yes. And that has happened before. There are a number of investments that we have made where the, the champion has really just laid themselves down and said, this is the one. I want to do this. I believe this strongly in it. And some of those have resulted in some pretty remarkable outcomes, including in the last couple of years. The site lists 21 different industries in Lux's portfolio. I'm wondering if these deals arose from industries that interest the firm or because of teams that interest the firm and that happen to operate in those industries. Well, the first thing I'll say is we love intersections. And so I actually find some of this industry categorization as problematic because if you look through the portfolio, you'll see we love healthcare meets robotics. We love AI meets food production. We love industrial IoT and data meets fintech. So it really is intersectional in terms of how we approach industries. And and that's the nature of how we think about investing. But in terms of how we think about where we want to make investments, we certainly have areas where historically we have spent a lot of time in that have given us insights into where there are white spaces, right? So whether it's having worked on autonomous vehicles and having insights through that experience into the types of software platforms that could power the next generation uh, of autonomy, right? So there's definitely a lot of generational and evolutionary investing, but we also get to know some amazing founders over time in our portfolio and oftentimes invest quite early in really remarkable founding teams. Zooks being one of your self-driving bets in the past, I read about a company yesterday that struck me as fascinating that Lux has backed to the series seed and that I guess was incubated at Founders Fund called Varda. So this is a company that is in or will be in the business of space manufacturing. So making commercially viable products at scale in space. 
We pride ourselves on companies that turn science fiction into fact. We are in a number of companies that are in the space space. Any excuse to say that because it sounds cool. <laughs> we were in relativity space. We're in a number of satellite companies, Orbital Insight and Planet and, and several others. But this is not only a space that we're interested in, but also the founding team is one that we've had the chance to get to know over time and felt very strongly about. It is not an intuitive company, which is probably part of the reason why you might be asking about it. Like, what exactly do they do, right? At the end of the day, obviously it's quite early, but they're working on two things at the intersection. Here we go with intersections again of two things that we really love, uh, manufacturing um, and uh, space and sort of uh, the orbital industry. Essentially, I mean, a lot of it is still early and confidential, but there's some really interesting innovations that we're just at the very beginning of understanding their application in space, whether it's in the physical processes and the supply chain. And this team is at the forefront of taking those on. Is it going to be like manufacturing carbon nanotubes in space to take to the ISS? Or what's the big picture need it's addressing? At the end of the day, the need is around cost and supply chain. And it's still extremely expensive to launch anything into orbit, right? We're talking tens of millions of dollars, if not more. And that is the key problem that they've taken on that they want to solve. Manufacturing in space is the hypothesis here. And they have some fascinating and confidential at this point, hypotheses as to how they will be able to do that. TechCrunch is having a space event next week, and I'm going to be talking to some space investors. And we chatted earlier this week, and we were talking about the fact that there's still a dearth of funding for later stage space companies, in part because there just haven't been a lot of liquidity events yet. So as you mentioned, Lux is now managing a lot of money, $2.5 billion. It raised a billion of that just last year across two funds. Are you seeing newer investors show up at the table? How is this issue getting addressed? It's interesting because I think we got excited about what we now call frontier tech before that was really a category, certainly before it had any venture return profile. Now it's becoming increasingly clear that frontier tech is no longer at the frontier. It's becoming a key part of many large enterprises. And we're seeing huge companies producing rockets en masse. We're seeing private companies launch rockets into space and collaborate with NASA. And we're also seeing venture-funded companies that previously literally sounded like science fiction that are increasingly approaching just phenomenal valuations. So it does seem like we're at a turning point here in terms of the industry. I think that speaks to the changing nature of the return profile and enterprise potential of these rocket ship ideas. You talked about turning science fiction into reality. And I noticed that one of the companies that you led is called Shiru, which is leveraging computational design to create enhanced proteins to help feed the world sustainably. How did you get comfortable making that investment, given the fact that you don't have a sciences background? Did you talk to experts? What was your process to get to the point where you could lead that investment? Yeah, that is definitely one of the ones I'm, I'm most excited about in my portfolio. You know, a lot of the, the companies that I look at are deeply grounded in science. That's a key part of my investment thesis. And if you look at my academic background, it doesn't get less sciencey than that. My undergraduate degree is in social studies and Near Eastern languages and civilizations. I went to grad school at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. But what's not there in terms of the LinkedIn or resume bio is the lifelong passion and commitment to science. And for me also, 
also to medicine. I come from a family of physicians and inventors. My grandfather in Iraq was a pediatrician who did work with the World Health Organization and patented a device to measure malnutrition in children. And so I've always personally been excited about that and have also just been the type of geek who reads science journals and actually medical journals for fun. I'm every doctor's worst nightmare when I come in and talk <laughs> about cohort analysis um, and thinking about recommendations. So with regard to Shiro specifically, I'm not a computational biologist. I'm not a protein scientist. I didn't study chemistry or biology, but I did spend a lot of time, especially at GV with some of the alternative protein companies in our portfolio. And a big part of what I've done since my days in government and certainly up until the time at, at GV and throughout my time at Google has been talking to commercial partners, Fortune 500 companies and understanding what their needs are. And that was a big part of my role at GV was helping to plug in these large behemoth companies with up and coming tech companies and help them to meet the innovation demands that they have. And so that's a large part of where my thesis came from. I really genuinely believe that there is a huge opportunity in food that enables these Fortune 500 food companies to meet the increasing demands from consumers, environmental demands, and cost demands on animal-based ingredients. And Shearer's approach is an interesting one because they are taking a business model that has worked quite well in pharma, a space I also know well from my experience in healthcare, in enabling the production of novel IP, in this case, novel plant-based proteins, using machine learning and computational biology and actually licensing it to these food companies so that they can go on to produce their own versions of the Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat or simply replace a costly animal-based ingredient in one of their products. Dina, that's really interesting. And for listeners, that's Shiru, S-H-I-R-U. So it seems like you're amassing a pretty interesting portfolio on the whole. It looks like you've also led a deal in Moss, a tech platform trying to make college more affordable, Neo, which simplifies accounting for small and medium-sized businesses, All Stripes, which aggregates and analyzes medical records, and then sells the de-identified data to pharmaceutical companies to help them develop medicines. So I guess the common thread here is machine learning. Yeah, for me, it's about machine learning, AI, that streamlining a really analog industry, whether it's education, whether it's finance, whether it's food, and certainly healthcare. And healthcare is really where I spend the majority of my time. And there are two more investments, which you'll be hearing about in the months to come in that space and where I'm spending more of my time, which goes back to the product side where I spend most of my time at Google. What is your pacing? How long does it take you to get comfortable with a company? Sometimes VCs will say, well, we feel like we have the bandwidth to really spend time with two new investments a year. How are you thinking about this? It goes back to this unique setup at Lux where it is the same group of us looking at different stages. And that answer is different depending on the stage of company that we're looking at. And also whether it's an industry where we know all the players, we have strong relationships that we're able to easily diligence, et cetera. So the the short answer is it really depends, but certainly for an earlier stage company, there's just not as much due diligence in terms of actual numbers or metrics. So it's really about profound conviction in the market my approach is definitely taking a a bottoms up approach to analyzing that. And I'm very thesis driven in what I look at. So it's usually a market I already know and understand where I've met a lot of the companies. Two is of course the founder. And I have my own characteristics that I tend to really appreciate in founders. And those are aligned with many of what Lux looks at. We love contrarians. We love rebels. We love the overlooked and underdog founders. And I, in particular, as a, a child of immigrants and somebody who's intersectional myself, I find a symbiotic attraction to those types of 
founders as well. And I find that they really represent the grit and the work ethic and the, the excitement that attracts excellent talent and commercial partners and financing down the line. So team is also a big part of it. Of course, if we're looking at a later stage company, you're really digging into attraction. You actually have some numbers to look at. You need to analyze economics and you also have existing investors who are able to help you diligence that as well. So it's a very different process, but I tend to spend a lot of time diligencing before I make an investment. Dina, you're also on the board, I saw, of TechWadi, a nonprofit that's focused on building bridges between Silicon Valley and the Arab world. You mentioned your family comes from Iraq. You speak fluent Arabic as well as French. Are you looking at deals in the Middle East? How do you capitalize on these deals? Yeah. So my personal background and academic background and even early professional background was largely focused on the Middle East. And it's certainly something I spent a lot of time on in my personal capacity as a board member of several organizations. I tend to get a lot of really interesting inbound, some really remarkable founding teams that are trying to take on opportunities in the region. We invest globally. And so if there was a company that was a fit for all the other criteria, we would absolutely invest in it. But oftentimes, especially given how early some of these companies are, it hasn't been a geography where we've invested, but always on the lookout. And I love to support those teams in in any way I can, which is part of what TechWadi does as well in connecting talented teams to VCs as well as to uh, commercial partners. That's interesting that Lux invests globally. Everybody seems to have expanded geographically where their funding companies, given that we're living through this Zoom era right now. What percentage of its companies is in the U.S.? And, and then maybe what are its second and third biggest markets? We have the ability to invest globally and we have invested in Europe. And we have a couple companies in the U.K. We have a company in Italy and another one in Estonia. We're always open to looking there and we try to not have geography be a filter by any means. But the vast majority of our companies to date have been in the U.S. and in in the areas that we physically have boots on the ground. But for us, it's about what's defensible in general about the company, but also even about the geography. Is there something unique to this particular location that enables them better access to talent? They can be uniquely differentiated in a space that doesn't have as many incumbents, et cetera, et cetera. To your point, COVID has changed a lot of things. I think it's very interesting that we literally oftentimes have no idea where somebody is. It's just a generic living room or closet or wherever it is they're taking their Zoom from. And I I think ultimately we're probably going to see demographic shifts in portfolio construction as a result of that. Sure, sure. And it's exciting. Sequoia Capital, for example, is spending much more time in Europe as well. I'm wondering, would Lux ever open an office there? Is there somebody on the ground in Europe? We don't have somebody on the ground in Europe. Who knows what the future holds in terms of of that? But for now, our team's in New York and and San Francisco in Menlo Park have invested globally. So we haven't necessarily seen the need to have boots on the ground in certain locations. We definitely have trusted partners, angels, co-investors, and so on who are there that we talk to often and who can help give us access to some of those early stage founders. You talked about some of the areas that Lux is interested in, and you also said that you're interested in food and healthcare. I'm just wondering if you can give us a flavor of some of the more interesting companies you've seen recently or some of the areas in particular that you're digging into? Yeah, absolutely. So within healthcare specifically, I am spending a lot of time looking at women's health. And within women's health, I'll start by saying I think oftentimes women's health is conflated as just fertility or maternity, which I think, Connie, you would agree is somewhat offensive that we're relegated to just our reproductive organs, right? And there's certainly much more to it than that. But within women's health, I am looking a lot at fertility tech. 
And I've seen everything from robotic cryo storage to embryo selection to consumerized clinics for IVF. And it's definitely an interesting market and one that's growing, especially if you look more broadly at demographic trends in terms of women having children later in life, as well as what we're seeing in terms of IVF rates in in other countries as well. So definitely spending a lot of time looking at fertility and the maternal journey in general. I myself am a mother of two young kids and had some pretty scary medical experiences myself with with both of their birds. And so that has, it it definitely inspired a look into that space as a patient, but also one where I think there's really been underinvestment. I I get really frustrated when I hear anyone talk about women's health as niche. There's nothing niche about it from a pure numbers perspective. It represents obviously half the population, but women also account for over 80% of dollars spent in healthcare. And so I do think companies that are focused on women in the healthcare space are also excellent wedges into other areas. So outside of those areas in women's health, I'm looking at menopause, I'm looking at aging in place for anyone across the gender spectrum. And mental health is a huge one too. Uh, I think I mentioned I come from a family of physicians. My father is a psychiatrist. In fact, that's the reason I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, He uh, came to Stanford in the 70s for his residency in psychiatry. And so I've had a lifelong fascination with mental health. In fact, like many children of immigrants, for a hot minute, I thought I was going to be a doctor myself and even interned with the VA's psychiatry department right before going to college. But part of why I get excited about it is because it is one of the fields in medicine that is still so untouched by tech, certainly on the data side in terms of being slow to adopt EHRs, on the diagnostic and therapeutic side. There have been some really interesting non-pharmacological interventions for mental health, like TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and increasingly more. But it has been elusive. And of course, it's top of mind for many folks right now with the mental health burden on everyone of the pandemic. And so seeing a lot of really interesting novel approaches that have emerged, as well as tailwinds propelling some of the companies that have been around for a while in the space. That's really interesting. This question probably could be the subject of another podcast, but you have obviously a very different background than a lot of people in the VC space, but you have a really unique set of skills. I'm just wondering, how do you feel that you look at deals differently than other people? And also, how do we encourage that diversity in Silicon Valley? Yeah, that's a great question. I graduated college thinking I was going to do a PhD in anthropology. I definitely had no aspirations or 10-year plan to get into venture. And I often get asked this question by especially younger women who are thinking about careers in venture, how they can best position themselves and what the path is. And I have to be very honest that for me, it was always an orientation and drive toward impact that led me from one experience to another and and then ultimately led me to venture. Starting off on the academic path, very briefly dipping my toes in journalism, covering a speech that President Obama gave that inspired me to join the administration. They're focused on entrepreneurship and technology from the government side, witnessing the power of technology in the Arab Spring, and ultimately from there, making my way back to my hometown of Silicon Valley. And even within my tenure at Google, where I worked on Moonshot products, I worked on everything from fiber to infrastructure, machine learning, to healthcare, which is where I ended up spending most of my time and what ultimately led me 
to venture, realizing that big tech was not going to be solving some of these super intractable problems. And I I was finding incredible entrepreneurs who were doing things better, faster, and more efficiently than very well-resourced teams in big tech. But over the years in these very different roles, I've had the chance to meet some really, really incredible people that at age 24, I probably had no business sitting down with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, but by virtue of being at the platform that I was at in Secretary Clinton's office, I had the chance to do that. And I had the chance to talk about partnerships with them and to better understand how they think about, in that case, diplomacy and development, but also innovation. And that evolution from these very different fields to one another has given me insight into how different sectors work, has given me a Rolodex that I've brought to bear for really meaningful commercial partnerships for the portfolio, and also given me my own theses around white spaces where I think that there's opportunity for a new co. And also, of course, you all are journalists. I think that is one of the best ways to, to understand how to ask the right questions, how to quickly diligence spaces, how to get to truth. And so my experience there, as well as my academic background in anthropology, which is ultimately, again, about ethnography, understanding people and storytelling, these are all such important skills to bring to bear as a VC, although by no means intuitive and certainly not illustrative of what many have thought to date as a template of, of becoming a venture investor. But I'm happy to say I'm seeing more and more differentiated backgrounds in venture. And it is very clear that there's a symbiotic attraction with those very different founders and these very different VCs. I think that's magical. And we're going to be seeing more of that. And one of the reasons I chose to come to Lux was because of how differentiated they were and how intellectually diverse everyone was and how they really truly saw and valued parts of my background that I didn't even necessarily think to be relevant to venture investing. I wanted to ask just quickly about SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. Lux formed one in October, raising $300 million. It's a health tech focused SPAC. Peter has written a little bit online about why Lux sees the value in these. I just wondered if you could talk for a minute if you think we'll be seeing many more of these from Lux and why they make sense because there are so many venture firms that are on the fence. I think one of the biggest issues is whether it's the conflict. You're not supposed to know who the target is when you're forming these special purpose acquisition companies. So it's like, do you back a portfolio company? Do you go after a company that you have no association with whatsoever? Just wondering if you could shed a little bit more light on how Lux is thinking about these. Yeah, it's such an interesting phenomenon in 2020. Mm -hmm. I think definitely one of the surprises for all of us, how SPACs have emerged as a really interesting and actually attractive opportunity, I think, for for so many companies. The first thing to say is that the SPAC that we launched is run by Josh Defonso, who was president of Oris, one of our largest exits, which was acquired by Johnson & Johnson and really an expert in obviously surgical robotics, but the intersection of healthcare and tech. So the decision-making around that is definitely operated independently. And Peter himself is on the board. But we believe that SPACs are really powerful for companies who have an exciting, big story to tell, but whose value isn't necessarily best evaluated by looking in the rearview mirror. And given the changing nature, in particular with healthcare, of everything the pandemic has done, I think that it's a particularly uh, salient and interesting opportunity for healthcare. And so 
We're a sponsor, of course, of our SPAC. We're also supportive of many of our companies, including outside of healthcare, taking that route. And at the end of the day, it's a financing instrument, in, in this case, to public markets, but really is only going to be as good as the partners that participated. Traditional IPOs that we've seen are relevant for companies that have reached a certain stability and a certain steady state. But oftentimes we see startups much later in life that are continuing to recreate, to reinvent, to grow, to adapt, especially with you know the, the, the craziness of 2020. And so I think SPACs really allow public market investors to participate in that type of value creation that wouldn't necessarily make as much sense for the traditional IPO because of the unique nature, this reverse merger structure that allows you to share really more of what you're expecting to do in the next two, three, four years rather than what you would be looking at in retrospect in an IPO. Will we see the Chamath Palahapatiya route where you see room for many of these coming out of Lux? And would Lux eventually partner potentially with a startup that it has worked with in the past? Or is the idea not to do that? We're not doing that right now. We've gotten some really interesting inbound from some of the top companies in, in the healthcare space. And as you can imagine, it's just a very... Very interesting time for healthcare. So we're not looking at our own portfolio companies, but a number of our companies are going down that path and we're encouraging them to. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially the, the success of the space tourism company. Virgin Galactic is makes an interesting data point in this yeah. area too. Dina, thanks again. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Take care. That's it, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Take care.